Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be in verses 14 through 16. And if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, you can find our text on page 1003. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And the essence of our confidence, grace. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, you tell us through the prophet Isaiah that you wait to be gracious to us. You long to be gracious to us. You exalt yourself to so show mercy to us, to show mercy to your people. And so it is our privilege that we can gather together and be called by your name. It is our privilege that we can open your word and hear by your spirit's illumining power, your voice, your word through these words. Father, we recognize we need your help to hear, to believe, to trust, even for one day to obey what you call us to do here. And so we ask that you would give power to the preaching of your word, that you would give us humility in our hearts to receive it, that we would leave differently, that those who are here who are far from you would be brought near, those who don't know you would be reconciled to you. And those of us called by your name would trust you even more. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, all kinds of voices in this world offer all kinds of advice for how to build confidence. The website Zen Habits has groom yourself and dress nicely as they're taught to, building confidence. Forbes magazine has get things done, be productive. That's number one on their list. Psychology Today, the publication, gives what they call the absolute key to confidence. Believe in yourself. Which means unconditionally accept that you are both capable and desirable. And I think we can laugh at those kinds of answers, but for how many of us is this precisely how we're trying to build confidence before God? And build confidence everywhere else. Just look the part. Play the Christian game. Believe in yourself, your works, your ability, your attractiveness before God, that there's something that you can do to clean up before him. Just don't think too carefully about sin or temptation or weakness or pain or death, certainly not wrath. But what if we're completely honest with ourselves about our inability to live righteously in our own strength for any single hour of any single day? What if we really start to come to terms with the fact that there's nothing in our power, in our ability that will make us commendable to God? What if we come to realize that we're neither capable nor desirable in the place where it matters most? 
Oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? How is confidence even possible? Well, at times when I've preached over the last year, we've walked through a series called The Essence of the Christian Life. And in Sermon 1, we just talked about the essence of the Christian life, faith working through love from Galatians 5, 1 and 6. Sermon 2, the essence of our motivation, the fear, love, and glory of Christ from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 16. Sermon 3, the essence of our hope and resurrection, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. The fourth sermon, the essence of our power and wisdom, the word of the cross from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. And this morning, we're going to consider the essence of our confidence, namely the essence of our confidence before God and therefore everywhere else. How can we as unholy sinners be confident in the presence of a holy God and as a result, confident everywhere else in daily life? Because if you can be confident in the presence of God, you can be confident anywhere. You should be confident anywhere. And not an inflated, shallow self-confidence, not a false sense of confidence, nor no confidence, but a humble, deep, secure in God confidence. And how does that help us in times of need? That's what Hebrews 4 14 through 16 is about. Verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Just one short main point from this passage, that in life and death, the essence of our confidence is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the point. In life and death, the essence of our confidence is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because here the author of Hebrews is writing to a people who are tempted to go back to all their old ways of finding confidence before God and other people. He's writing firstly to Jews who had come to faith in Christ, suffered persecution, experienced doubt, and now they're being tempted to go back to the law of Moses, to go back to old covenant sacrifices and offerings, to go back to earthly priests to mediate for them. They were tempted to go back because they were human, which means weak, prone to prefer familiar traditions, things in their control over these new covenant promises and faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone. That's why they're tempted. In the same way we're all tempted, we'd rather have control of it. We'd rather be able to measure it, have it in our hands. And here's these promises in Christ Jesus. They were tempted because they were being scorned for leaving all those old covenant works to embrace that faith in Christ. They had family scorning them, friends scorning them, a whole community persecuting them because they're not showing up to synagogue anymore. 
We're not going through all those emotions anymore. So the author of Hebrews is making this irrefutable case that Jesus is better. That Jesus is greater. That Jesus, therefore, is the one who deserves all their faith, all their hope, all their confidence. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the one through whom God now decisively speaks, Hebrews 1-2. Through Jesus, God the Father created the world, Hebrews 1-2. He's better than angels, Hebrews says, having a more excellent name than they have, providing a more excellent ministry to God's people, Hebrews 1-4-14. He became a little lower than the angels by partaking of flesh and blood, so that through death he might conquer death and, Hebrews 2.14, destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses was just a type of Jesus Christ. Moses was merely a servant in God's house. Jesus came as a son in God's house, Hebrews 3.1-6. Jesus is better and greater than Joshua. And the promised land rest that was offered to Israel through Joshua, Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 10. He's greater than any earthly priest to ever enter the earthly temple. Because he serves as a priest without beginning or end. Who serves as the source of eternal salvation through the perfection of his life. Hebrews 5, 1 through 6, 20. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Because even Abraham gave an offering to Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, and Melchizedek just foreshadowed Jesus Christ, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. Jesus is greater than the entire Levitical priesthood because of, Hebrews 7, 16, the power of his indestructible life. He's the guarantor of a better covenant, Hebrews 7, 22. His sacrifice is better because he offers the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 7, 27. His ministry transpires in a greater temple under a greater covenant, enacted on greater promises, and those promises can actually transform your heart, Hebrews 8, 1 through 12. And according to Hebrews 9, Jesus doesn't serve in an earthly temple, but a heavenly one. Not before an earthly altar, but a heavenly altar. Not surrounded by images of cherubim, but actual cherubim. He doesn't offer the body of bulls, his own body. He doesn't offer the blood of goats, but his own blood. And he doesn't offer those sacrifices again and again and again, but once for all time. Because his life and death are that sufficient. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he's going to make the case that the entire old covenant sacrificial system has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So let us, according to Hebrews 4.11, not go back to old covenant works. But instead, let us strive to enter that rest that belongs to us in Christ. So that we do not fall short, Hebrews 4.11. Because Jesus sees right through us. His word penetrates right through us. Able to weigh the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. 
Hebrews 4.12. And we will all stand before him and give an account. Hebrews 4.13. Stand before a person who sees right through you. Sees through all the works, all the abilities, right to the heart. Weighs the very intentions of your soul. The very things that motivate not just the bad things you do, even the good things that you do. So how can we stand before God in life or death with any confidence? Well, verse 14, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And the basic theme of the whole book is expressed in those words. Our judge has become our high priest. The one who would have condemned us is the one now who justifies us. Notice the words, we have plural, possessive. It's not impersonal, it's personal. That everything he says about Christ belongs to us who are in Christ. That he is ours. And we can't lose him. We have a great high priest. Someone who can represent us before God the Father. Someone who can mediate for us with God the Father. Someone who can offer God the Father an acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. And he's great because his name is great. His ministry is great. His sacrifice is great. The debt he pays is great. And the place where he offers that payment is great. Which is what's captured in the next phrase. Who has passed through the heavens. That Jesus came down from heaven and lived on earth as a sinless servant. And he died upon a cross in our place. And this offering of himself was accepted by God in heaven, the place where God dwells. Though hanging on a wooden cross on an earthen hill under a clouded sky surrounded by people made of dirt, his shed blood reached into heaven and satisfied God's wrath, satisfied his justice. It secured redemption for us there. Hebrews 9.11 Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That just as an earthly high priest would pass through the outer court into the holy place and then into the most holy place once a year to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. So Jesus is going to pass from earth through the heavens into the most holy place of heaven to atone for the sins of his people for all time. And that that act rendered the earthly temple obsolete. You just don't even need it anymore because of what he did. Notice who rendered it obsolete. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, enfleshed as a human. Fully man, Jesus. Fully God, the Son of God. The only one who could actually gain access for us there. Probably been 10 years ago, had a few friends that they were in Boston and they had an evening off and the Red Sox were in town and they decided, hey, let's go to Fenway Park and watch a game. So they find the cheapest tickets they can find in the last few rows of the highest section 
and they head off downtown and go to Fenway Park. And on their way there, they kind of get disoriented in all the buildings, and they're not sure how to get there. And they're at a crosswalk, about to cross the street, and next to them is this sweet little lady in her late 60s and just decked out head to toe in Red Sox gear. They're like, you know what? I bet she knows. So they ask her, ma'am, they introduce themselves, and her name was actually Mrs. Smith, not a lie, it really was, and just asked if she could show them the way. And she said, you know what? And learned a little bit about them, where they are from, pastors from out of town. And so she said, well, follow me. So she takes them around a couple corners, and then there's Fenway Park. And as they're going toward the, the front gate, she says, well, come with me. And they veer off a little to the left, and there's a door there with security guards. And as they're approaching it, they open the door and walk in with her. And then they're about to go to their seat. She says, you know what? How would y'all like to watch the game from, from the Green Monster? Like sitting right up there in that little exclusive section. Like, oh, that'd be amazing. So she says, well, come with me. And they walk, and there's just door after door of security personnel. And they just walk through. And they watch the game for a couple innings, and the Green Monster, she goes, you know what? How would you like to watch some of the game from one of the executive suites? Eat some dinner. Or like, that, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> so she said, well, come with me. So they get up, and she leads them through another set of all these security doors and to an executive suite at Fenway Park that's overlooking the game, and there's food, and they sit, and they watch a couple more innings. She says, well, how, how would you like to watch the game from the owner's office? I'm like, well, that, that'd be cool. Sure. She said, well, come with me. And they get up. She leads them through another set of doors, elevators, all this. And then they walk into the owner's office where there's just floor-to-ceiling windows where they can watch the rest of the game there. And along the way, they're like, okay, who are you? They're like, well, I'm just a fan. Well, as they get in the owner's office, they turn, and there's this massive poster, like Sports Illustrated, some magazine cover, and she's on it. Ends up, she's the Red Sox super fan. And I guess when she had not missed a home game for 50 years, the owner decided to give her exclusive rights to go anywhere in the whole building she wanted and take whoever she wanted with her. That's access. It's not because they could get in. They wouldn't have gotten past the front gate. They wouldn't have gotten in the second door, let alone 20 doors after. It's because who they were with. And that's nothing compared to Jesus, who rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and just went in and gained access for us there. Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We put a couple guys on the moon, and we're proud of ourselves. We're still trying to get somebody to Mars. Even if we do someday, we'll be impressed. That's nothing compared to getting here a whole different place to put somebody in heaven, to pass through the heavens into the presence of God himself. Jesus passed through the heavens, not halted and executed by angels, but worshipped by angels. And then he walked into the throne room of God, 
approached the majesty on high, took a little step to the left, and according to Hebrews 8.1, just sat down. In other words, his priestly service was fulfilled. It was finished. And that's a remarkable thing because to this point in over a thousand years of high priestly work in the temple of God on behalf of sinners, not one of them ever sat down. Wouldn't dare. No chairs in the most holy place. On the contrary, Hebrews 10.1 says, the sacrifices were continually offered every year and could never make perfect those who drew near. And so the work of the priest was never done. They're always moving. Every year coming back. It was just temporary expressions of faith in the gracious mercy of God accepting the blood of animals in our place, but it was never enough. Jesus shows up once, offers his body and blood once, and the penalty of all the sins of God's people across human history was paid instantly. Every wicked thought, every wicked feeling, every wicked action, every wicked intention, every wicked inclination, every failure to love perfectly, every form of selfishness, stinginess, covetousness, hatefulness ever committed by any one of his people, Jesus paid it all. And that really is the good news of the gospel, that he forgives sins. And when you trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, he washes them away. And what Psalm 103 tells us, and he removes them as far as the east is from the west from us. Never again to meet. So if you're here this morning and your faith is not in Christ, he's not your high priest. I want to ask you, who are you trusting in for your sins to be forgiven? And might I invite you to trust in him, to see yourself as a sinner, to see the day approaching when you will stand before God and give an account. And on that day, who do you want representing you? There's a lot of courtrooms in this world that you can represent yourself as an attorney. That's one courtroom you don't want to represent yourself. And praise God, you don't have to. There's someone you can actually put your faith in, your trust in, so that when you show up on that day, you just say, I'm with him. And if you have trusted in him, I encourage you, don't go back to trusting in anything else, which is where verse 14 takes us. Let us hold fast our confession. That's exhortation one. It's going to be two exhortations, two motivations. That's exhortation one. Let us hold fast our confession, meaning let us hold on to our confession of faith in him, our confession of trust in him, our confession that Jesus, the Son of God, is our righteousness, our confession of hope that the promises of God belong to us in him. That's what we confess, that he is our righteousness that we're saved by being united to him by his spirit through faith. So let us hold fast to that confession. Why? Well, verse 15, here's motivation one. If we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Because every high priest of Israel could sympathize if they were honest with the weaknesses of people because he too, Hebrews 5.1, was beset with weakness. None of them, however, could claim the phrase, yet without sin. Only Jesus Christ could claim that. He knew temptation in the wilderness, just as Israel knew it, just as we know it. He knew human weakness in the body, just as we do. He knew the temptation from the outside to set aside God's promises and listen to other promises. Yet he never yielded. He never sinned. This means he can sympathize with us. He can look at us and know what it means to be weak in a human body, to be tempted to defect. And yet having never defected, he can actually redeem us from every single defection we've ever committed, every sin we've ever committed, that he can sympathize and save us all at once. So he says, let us hold fast that confession because he's our perfect representative. And we hold fast by doing verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's exhortation two. Exhortation one, let us hold fast our confession. Motivation one, we have a sympathetic high priest. Exhortation two, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And this really is the application of the passage, the point of the sermon, because we have Jesus as our high priest who represents us and redeems us by grace. Let us draw near to God through Christ with confidence, with boldness, with freedom, with security, that we actually belong to the one that we're approaching. This is how we hold fast our confession, by drawing near to the one who gives us grace, to the God who gives grace. There's a scene in a movie that is probably one of my favorite scenes of any movie I've ever seen. The movie is Anna and the King, if you've ever seen it. It's a retake of The King and I. Jodie Foster is an English school teacher, goes with her son. She's a widow. They go to Siam, modern-day Thailand, to be the school teacher for all the king's children, the king of Siam. She didn't know it till she gets there that it's like 40 of them. And there's one of the scenes where it's the first day of school and the firstborn son of the king and her son get into a fight and they start going at it. And the whole pavilion that they're in school in, which is out in the palace gardens, erupts into noise. And one of the daughters, the sweet daughter of the king, runs from the pavilion and into the palace. And the camera shows her running through the palace with these guards standing everywhere. She just runs down these huge, beautiful foyers. And then she comes to the throne room and she reaches up to the door and pulls this massive door open. And the camera pans in and what you see is hundreds of servants and citizens of the king prostrate on the ground with their foreheads on the floor. Because you weren't allowed to look at the king without permission. And in front of these hundreds of bodies prostrate on the ground was this row of people kneeling. One was some delegation from another country. The other was a family that were offering their daughter to the king in marriage. And they're all kneeling, petitioning the king. And then there's these stairs that go up to a platform where there's a throne and the king is sitting on it. 
deciding on whatever he's deciding. And the camera follows this daughter as she jumps through all these bodies on the ground and then comes to the row of people at the front and pushes them aside to get through. And then she runs up the stairs. You know what the king does? Takes her right into his lap. And she whispers something in his ear. And then he stands up and she takes him by the hand and leads him out to go show him what she wanted to show him. And I remember seeing it and going, that's it. That's a Buddhist king with a daughter. How much more God with his children? That's what this passage is about. How is she able to dance through all these people, prostrate on the ground, through these rows of people petitioning the king, just run up to the throne and just whisper in his ear? And not a guard raises a hand. And in fact, the king not only kneels down and listens, but responds to her petition. With confidence. Not a reverence, not ignorance, nor terror and doubt. With confidence. With full assurance that we belong to the one that we approach. With boldness that every obstacle has been removed. With freedom that every objection to our approach has been squashed. Under the old covenant, only the high priest drew near once a year to offer atonement. But now, under the new covenant, we all draw near. Why? Because Jesus got there first and provided a way. We draw near by continually coming to him in prayer. What a gift that is to the church, just to pray. And there may be moments where in our prayers and our service, you may think, wow, this is long. I promise you, angels in heaven are just amazed, going, I can't believe they get to do this. I can't believe they just get to talk to this God anytime they want. That they just get to draw near and petition and speak and with confidence. We draw near by continually asking for his help, by continually confessing our need. We draw near by regularly reading, believing, remembering his word, listening to his word, responding in prayer, remembering his promises, remembering his work. We draw near by gathering as a church in worship, even at times by opening up and confessing sins to one another so that others can pray for us. We draw near together. We draw near by continually letting the words and works of Christ comfort us and assure us in our thoughts right down to our emotions. You so deeply believe it over time, you're actually emotionally comforted, emotionally at peace, emotionally secure. And notice what God calls that place where we draw near the throne of grace. The only place in Scripture we read that phrase. It's a wonderful image of a throne, a place of judgment and rule, a place of power and authority, a place usually of trepidation and fear, a place where few people would ever approach with confidence and freedom. Even Psalm 89 says of God's throne that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And yet because of Christ, who satisfied God's justice, who is our righteousness, that throne for us is a place of grace. 
Because the God who sits on it loves to give grace. A place of undeserved, unearned, lavish favor. A place of generous forgiveness. A place where previously enslaved people are free. Where sinners are pardoned. Where orphans are children. And a place where the greatest depths of the glory of God are displayed. His grace. A throne that for all who are in Christ is full of grace. We read it this morning, John 1.17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so the essence of our confidence before God and before everyone else is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. Meaning everything I just said is the grace of God. Don't nullify it. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Chosen by grace. Set apart by grace. United to Christ by grace. Made alive by grace. Able to see by grace. Able to hear by grace. Able to repent by grace. Believe by grace. Forgiven by grace. Adopted by grace, filled with the Spirit by grace, placed into the church by grace, secured by grace, able to persevere by grace, brought to glory by grace, justified by grace, sanctified by grace, glorified by grace. And according to Ephesians 1, we're just going to spend the rest of eternity praising the glory of His grace. Because all of human history has just been one big proving ground for the grace of God toward His people. What kind of madness would compel us to declare, no, thank you, God, I'll take care of it myself. I'll handle it. What kind of madness would make us believe that our best efforts to make ourselves right before God is a better plan of salvation? Well, the answer is our kind of madness. That's why this text is here. That's why we have to be reminded over and over and over again. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. 
You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Stand firm is Paul's way of saying, hold fast to your confession. Don't look to circumcision as your source of confidence before God. Which is a way of saying, don't look to any work you do, to any external act of obedience or avoidance of disobedience to justify you before God. That, he's saying, is a yoke of slavery. It produces anxiety, not peace. Insecurity, not security. It will either produce arrogance in you or constant turmoil in you. But never true rest. There's different kinds of legalism I think we have to battle in life. One is what we could call a kind of justification legalism. Where it's like we see heaven and outside heaven there's just rows of bathtubs. And before we get into heaven we've got we to gotta wash up. We've got to jump into a bathtub and just scrub and scrub and scrub. And then we jump out, and of course, by the time we jump out and run to the gates, what do we realize? Oh, wait, we're dirty again. Run back, jump in the tub, wash more, and it just never ends. But for many of us here, we may think, no, no, I, I know I'm justified by grace through faith. Like, I'm saved because of that. But yet there's this other kind we have to battle, and that's, okay, we get into heaven by grace, but we don't really get into the presence of God, like into the throne room. Like right there, get his ear without me cleaning up. So in our minds, there's like a whole other set of bathtubs right out in front of the throne room. We're thinking, I know I get into heaven by grace, but surely not like into his presence. This idea that as soon as the door opens and I walk in, God looks up and goes, oh, gosh. All right, you can come in, but yeah, sit over there. Face the wall. I want to see you for a while. And we just keep running back to whatever that bathtub is. Okay, this is how he'll really love me. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say, it's grace all the way. It's God's mercy all the way. It's faith all the way. And when you're his, and you're adopted, and you're reconciled, and you're forgiven, it's not just into some, into gates of heaven that we might imagine, but to the very presence of God, which is heaven. And then his countenance toward us is favorable because Jesus washes us, because Jesus cleanses us, because it's his conquering of death, not our avoiding death. It's his status, not our status. It's not the strength of our faith. It's the strength of his indestructible life. It's not our years of service in the church, but the service he renders in heaven. It's not how well we're put together or how great we look but how firmly we've been united to Christ by the work of his spirit, which is pretty firm. So he says, with grace or with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Which means at minimum in the quiet recesses of your heart, relate to God in every moment of your life as your trustworthy and all-sufficient redeemer, as your helper, as your comforter, as your savior, as your faithful friend. It means at minimum in the quiet recesses of your heart, always relating to God as the one who loves to show you grace, as the one who loves to give you help, 
you just keep coming to him. Minute by minute, day by day. And here's motivation two in verse 16, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That the reason we approach the throne of grace is to receive mercy and find grace, and you will. Because the Lord is pleased and glorified to show it to you, to give you that mercy and grace, to withhold judgment and impart favor. That's the very glory he's displaying about himself toward you. So the time of need refers to those times of spiritual weakness when we really do doubt the gracious promises of God where we really do experience temptation to put our faith and our hope in something other than our grace. We've all had those days, right? Surely he's not that good. Surely he's not that gracious. Surely he doesn't want to hear from me now. Surely he wants me to get some things together before I come. That's a moment of weakness. That's the very thing this passage is trying to kill in us or strengthen us in. That just as the Israelites were tempted to go back to Egypt, we can be tempted to go back to our formal way of life, a formal way of relating to God. This is why the author of Hebrews is going to spend all of chapter 3, half of chapter 4, reflecting on the people of Israel in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt, telling us not to harden our hearts the way they did. There's something that the author of Hebrews sees in the people of Israel in the wilderness that is just common to all God's people. Two kinds of temptation. The first is just to go back to sin as a way of life. That's the first thing he sees. Because though Egypt meant slavery, it was a kind of slavery to sin, it pictured. It meant sensuality. It meant self-serving idolatry. It was a symbol of immorality and injustice. Listen to Numbers 11, verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. You know that when your craving leaks, something is wrong. <laughs> but whatever it meant, it meant that's better than this. Better to go back where our flesh was fed. Because the people of Israel are going to say all kinds of statements like that in the wilderness. Let us go back to the place where our fleshly cravings were fed. The slavery of the place, forgotten. The sensuality of the place, the pleasure of the place, that's remembered. And that will be a temptation for each and every one of us. When the Lord leads us into some wilderness of trial to wean us from the world, to sanctify us by his word, we will be tempted to look at the world, forgetting the slavery of it, remembering the fun of it, and thinking, surely I can make it work. There's got to be some good reason for me to go back to that. This passage says, hold fast your confession. 
by in those moments crying out to God, the God of grace, with confidence, knowing he will give you grace to endure. The second thing the author of Hebrews is seeing, I think, is self-righteousness as a way of life. Though Egypt worked them to the bone, Egypt provided something they could measure, something they could control, something they could see. It was also a symbol of self-righteousness, of self-dependence. You know, remember in Numbers 13 when the spies are sent into the land of the promised land and they come back and they give word that, oh, yeah, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's some strong nations there. There's some giants there. There's some serious adversaries that are too great for us. Remember, Joshua and Caleb are going to stand up and say, God will deliver us. God will help us. He's the one who fights the battles, not us. We can trust him. Let's go. Here's how the people respond in Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Despite all the Lord had done in bringing them out of Egypt, Despite all that his grace that he'd lavished on them, all the power that he displayed through them, all that he'd proven by his works and promised by his word, the people still thought that conquering and receiving the promised land depended on their works. We have to pull this off. And so the author of Hebrews is saying to New Covenant Christians, don't be like those Israelites who relied on their works. Don't be like those Israelites who thought the promised land rest that's being promised to you depends upon your ability. It always has been, it always will be God's grace, God's power, God's gift to you that you simply receive. So he's saying, unlike the rabble in the wilderness, unlike the Israelites who distrusted the trustworthiness and graciousness of the Lord, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that in our time of need, he's merciful. In our time of need, he's gracious. He's full of it. Come continually to him as your loving father because of your great high priest. So let me give you four brief applications, and we'll close. Four brief applications. Number one, set your heart to study, know, and glory in the work of Jesus Christ as your high priest. Set your heart to study it, to know it. Just go read the whole book of Hebrews, and then when you're done, read it again. Then after that, read it again. And then every year for the rest of your life, just read it. And everything else that keeps pushing into your heart the work of Jesus, your great high priest. Number two, set your heart to study, know, and glory in the grace of Christ every day for the rest of your life. Become a student of his grace. Commit yourself to know everything you can about his grace. There's a lot, I'm sure, of great Netflix series out there and things go. None of them will help you know his grace. 
Don't make it wrong to watch things, but just devote yourself to this. Set your mind to this. Fix your heart on studying, knowing, and glorying his grace. Thirdly, when pain comes, when trial comes, don't run to any worldly refuge for comfort. Run to God. Learn to be comforted by God. Learn to receive mercy from God, grace from God. He will help you. But we have to learn how to receive it. And then number four, when you sin, which will be a lot. When you fail, which will be often. When you fall short, which will be most days. Even when you walk into this room every week, when you sit down in your life group, don't just play the Christian game. Don't make it about appearance. Don't make it about you cleaning up, you polishing up, you presenting a certain way. Don't make it about self-dependence. Trust his grace. Let that be your source of confidence before him. Let it be your source of confidence before everybody else that you are a product of grace, a receiver of grace, saved in every sense of the word by grace. Because if we can be confident before the throne of grace in heaven, can we not be confident before everybody else on earth? I've said it before, the church is not a museum of artifacts hanging on a wall to be admired. It's a hospital full of patients who are being healed by a great physician. So there's a lot of blood and smells in there. But that's where the great physician does his work. That's where he displays his power. That's where he displays his glory. And we're going to spend eternity praising him for that glory of his grace. So let's make sure to get there with lots of evidence of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this grace. We glory in this grace. We say this is our confidence that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, who's sympathetic, whose life, death, and resurrection are sufficient to satisfy you. Oh, Lord, make them sufficient to satisfy us so that we would be confident before you, so that we would approach you continually because you're a God of grace and mercy. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.